Thank you for that lovely introduction. Good evening. Um, so we are facing some ma massive questions, many of which have been touched upon this evening already, um, about the fragility of our earth, about the yawning inequality of our societies, about whether technology is going to trap or free us. Uh, what do we call community? in a globalized world. It's very easy to feel very overwhelmed. In the autumn of 2018, I felt really overwhelmed. I had been a campaigner for about 10 years at that point. I started my career as a journalist and editor for a Reuters news agency. I traveled the world covering all sorts of stuff. And then, over the course of about five years of trying to get an autism diagnosis and support for my eldest daughter, I became, out of sheer need, an agitator and a lobbyist and a campaigner for equal rights uh, for people with disabilities, um, particularly women and girls with disabilities, and their carers. And from there, out of real impatience at the unwillingness of politicians to prioritize some of this stuff, I helped to um, build and also led the Women's Equality Party. Now, over four years of leading WEP, this happened. Uh, so, uh, the, U the EU referendum happened. Uh, a female UK politician was murdered, the wonderful Joe Cox. Uh, the not-so-wonderful Donald Trump was elected. Uh, fake news became a thing. We had the Me Too movement. Bye, Harvey. <laughs> Convicted rapist, Harvey Weinstein. Um, uh, there were mass murder attacks in Paris, Manchester, Barcelona, Christchurch, New Zealand. There was a snap election in 2017, uh, more arguing about Brexit. Uh, we marked 10 years of austerity. Um, We've discovered that one in every 50 people in the UK now use food banks. During all of this time, I campaigned for women's equality. I campaigned for equal pay, equal representation, an end to violence against women and girls. I campaigned for feminist foreign policy. I campaigned for reproductive rights. Um, and I did debates, many, many debates, where women's equality was presented as one side of an argument that could plausibly be challenged by a nicely turned out misogynist. Uh, I was abused on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, in my inbox, to my face. Uh, I, they, they started having to take me in round the back of radio stations uh, to avoid any waiting thugs outside. Uh, and the world just got more and more divided. And so much rage and pain was breathtaking. Um, and then there were the crew that kept saying this to me. Like, you're a really crap feminist, on top of everything else. Like, you're really bad at this. You're just bad. You're so bad. That was a bit Trumpian, wasn't it? So bad. Um, uh, but these were some of these people that I had really wanted to work with and hoped I was going to work with, and they just kept telling me I was crap and to shut up and go away. Um, and, and I got to the point where I thought, actually, maybe the only useful thing I can do here 
is to bugger off, uh, is to make space for somebody that might be better at this than I am. So, so I stopped. Um, and I spent the following months um, lying on my sofa with the curtains drawn, watching every episode of The Good Wife. <laughs> it's really good, turns out. I'd never had time to watch it before. It's great. Um, but through this whole time, my brain kept turning and turning and turning. I was trying to work out, like, how do you do this activism stuff? How do you do this? How do you be an activist um, and, and not go mad? And I realized that activism is a philosophy rather than a series of pitched battles. And I began to think, okay, so what are the rules for this philosophy that might underpin it? How would I work out how this might work? Uh, how did, so how did I do that? Well, I did a lot of reading, um, and I sought out and listened to many, many brilliant activists from all around the world doing really, really interesting work. Um, and I also uh, went to home base. Uh, this is actually my local home base. Um, I went in the winter, though, so it, it looked a bit grim. Um, uh, I thought activism is really challenging work, and it requires mastery of certain skills and patience and a care for results. I'm going to ask DIY people how to save the world. So um, I sort of went for a while, and I lurked for a bit in some of those sections with all the amazing knobs. Um, and, and after a while, I started sort of asking people, look, you know, you're obviously pretty handy um, and obviously good at fixing things, so how would, how would you set about fixing the world? Uh, and the ones that didn't sort of edge away from me um, uh, gave me answers like, it's all a mess. What's the point? There's nothing I can do. I wouldn't know where to start. Nobody listens. Now, alas, such pessimism uh, is not just limited to Finchley. Uh, public attitude polls show a majority of the public don't trust politicians, they don't trust institutions. Uh, the Young Women's Trust, where I'm now chief exec, recently found in our research that 72% of young women have lost confidence in politicians. Uh, not long ago, I'm sure many of you saw this, uh, Credit Suisse uh, research found that 1% of the world's population uh, possess half of the world's wealth. So put all those things together and, and, and it becomes pretty obvious that, you know, it gets very easy to get to a place where you think, well, what, what can I do about any of this? Um, you know, pushing away a sinking feeling is a response that so many of us are so trained in, you know, I'm just gonna fix my own roof, thanks very much. So the first rule for rebellion is to defeat despair. Oh, so easy. Uh, but looking closely into your despair, you will discover the way out of it. Because the moment that you recognize how daunted you are by the sadness of the world around us, the inequality of the world around us, you are simultaneously recognizing that you do want more. As George Eliot put it in her book Middlemarch, what we call our despair is often only the painful eagerness of unfed hope. We should really listen to the advice of a woman who had to take a man's name in order to fulfill her creative ambition in a world organized to keep her quiet. George Eliot, Mary Ann Evans did not keep quiet. She wrote and she wrote and she wrote. And what she wrote about 
was her belief in people's abilities to work towards a better society. And she also understood that much of our society is organized to foster despair. It's built by the winners to keep everyone else subdued. The people in power rely on your feelings of powerlessness to keep them there. There's a psychological concept called learned helplessness, which was discovered by a guy called Martin Seligman through a series of uh, 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 tests on, that involved dogs and electric shocks, which I will spare you the details of. But he basically describes a state in which one's inability to control our environment can create a deep and undefeatable depression. So, as, de as despair is structural, our response to it must also be. Progress doesn't happen by tweaking broken systems. It happens by building entirely new ones. And that means new ideas, like yours, and yours, and yours. I'll stop now because they're all going, don't look at me. Um, but like, we need you, we need your new ideas. So if you'd been sitting thinking, someone else is gonna do this, they're not, right? No one's coming to the rescue. Hooray! Now we can liberate ourselves. An interesting thing happens when you decide to defeat despair. The process of letting yourself feel how you really feel can often result in anger. The closer you connect to the hurt caused by the world's unfairness, the more furious you may become. Now, tuning into our anger is very challenging, and it's particularly so for women. How many women in this room have at some point been told by a man you do not know and have never seen before to cheer up? <laughs> because your face was not expressing placatory contentment at all times. A woman's anger provokes indignation and aggression and fear. We get called over-emotional and hysterical and feisty, a word reserved for women and animals. But if you ignore your anger, you are turning it in on yourself instead of figuring out what's going on. Your anger has information for you. Collaborate with it. Listen to it. It will show you what really matters to you and what to address. And when the people who benefit from the status quo tell you that your anger is unnatural, it's working. Because that is the emergency override from the system. And you are the blinking light that says the system is failing. So channel your anger. Make it into what uh, philosopher Martha Nussbaum calls transition anger, transitional anger, to get you into a better place. Now, so, that's rule two. Now, a lot of people don't like angry feminists. Fancy. But I tell you what they find a whole lot more alarming, and that's an optimistic feminist. <laughs> that's an, oh shit, she's serious. Uh, so, I'm gonna talk about hope. When I was a little girl, I had a second-hand book of Greek uh, myths with really beautiful illustrations. Uh, and I loved most of the tales in it, apart from one of them about a really boring woman called Pandora. Here she is. Uh, now, 
Pandora was sent off to marry this guy called Epimetheus, who was the brother of Prometheus, who had stolen fire from the gods and really upset them. So Pandora was shipped down there uh, and her, with a wedding gift, which was a box, which they were... Whoa, really? <laughs> Do you want to get comfortable? I'll go a bit faster. Uh, so it was a box that she wasn't allowed to open, but of course she did. And all these terrible, terrible things flew out of it, summed up in this children's version as whooping cough and unkind stories and sums that won't come right. Total disaster. And then Pandora sees at the bottom of the box, can you tell I'm talking really fast now, whoops, um, a lone last thing, which is, of course, hope. And the story ends with the marvelously dismissive line. So you see, although Pandora set loose everything that is disagree disagreeable in life, she also set hope free too. As a child, I thought that was totally rubbish. Right? But now I realize what an interesting character Pandora is. The first human woman sculpted out of earth and bestowed with charm and beauty in the gods and sent to live with men as their epic punishment for stealing. Now, I don't think the great trouble that women bring to the world is sickness and bad sums. I think it is hope. As a class of people who are oppressed not by the gods, but by man-made laws and economics. Here is the most important thing about hope. Rebecca Solnit. It is not something soft. It is something real. It is a key asset for every campaigner. Now, you've cast off despair, you've channeled your anger, you've seized hope as power, now you have to find your people. Change doesn't happen because one individual speaks up. Change happens when you build a movement, and connecting with other people requires an open mind towards those whose experiences will be different from yours. This is where we move into collaboration. Offering up your idea to be considered by others makes it stronger and more beautiful. It is hard to do. I've seen so many good ideas fail because their owner couldn't share them or took criticism personally. And that's very easy. That happens a lot in social media where we're encouraged to be gladiatorial. And because as activists, we bring our personal feelings to what we're doing. But the thing is, activism is not therapy. It's not about making space for everybody's feelings. It's about getting shit done. So you have to listen to each other, you have to collaborate with each other, and you have to use empathy you have to be, be prepared to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, and you have to turn I into we. So that's the fourth rule. I've got one minute to do the last rule. The fourth rule, compassionate collaboration. The compassion is what makes it work. Rule five. This is Catherine Switzer, the first woman to register and compete in the Boston Marathon in 1967. The furious man behind her is Jock Semple, the race organiser, who couldn't believe he had a woman in his race and pursued her, trying to pull her bib off, saying, get the hell out of my race! I can do that because I, am, I too am Scottish. Um, and in, she went on to finish, and in 1974, she won the New York Marathon. Now, being an activist can often feel like running a marathon with angry wee men trying to push you off the course. You need to look after yourself. You have to stay fit, you have to sleep, you have to eat well. Developing these habits can cause you to be deflected because there are so many messages telling you in this world that if you could just fix yourself, everything else would be fine. If only you had no physical imperfections. Drink the green juice. Get a spiralizer. Green juice spiralizers, lovely. Also, not the solution to structural inequality. And that's the thing that's really making you sad. Look, activism is tough. Campaigning is mostly losing. 
You have to fight your case again and again and again and again. You have to practice practicing. You have to persevere. You have to practice persevering. And that is rule five. And I'm going to end with this young girl. Her name is Bana al-Abed. And she and her mother, Fatima al-Abed, brought the world's attention to civilian lives during ferocious bombing in the Syrian city of Aleppo through cluster bombs and bunker buster bombs and phosphorus. They sent out tweets, they sent out social media. I met both of them, or rather I talked to them both via uh, uh, video link. And I, and I said to Fatima, what an extraordinary daughter you have. Like Bana now goes out and talks to world leaders about providing security and education for children in war zones. And I said to Fatima, how did you keep going? And she said to me, you have to place your faith in trust and in love. And that's basically what activism is. It's trust that the world can be a better place and love for those people who are taking that leap of faith with you. It is the most rebellious thing you can do. And I hope my five rules help. Thank you very much.